Amen. We are looking this morning at John chapter 2 as we continue on in our sermon series in the fourth gospel. And we are looking this morning at John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, and we're going to read down to verse 22. You'll find that printed in your bulletin. You'll also uh, find it helpful to have a copy of scripture open if you have one in front of you and to be reading along with me. We have most recently seen the Lord Jesus exhibiting his power and his glory and turning water to wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee and doing that first sign and manifesting his glory and showing that he came to bring spiritual joy and spiritual blessing and spiritual satisfaction and what the empty shell of Judaism could never do, Jesus came to do. John noted at the beginning of this book, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and that in him he is full, he is full of grace and truth. And so we are looking at the Lord Jesus full of grace and truth this morning, and John now says this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was, uh, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said these things and they believed the scripture. And the word that Jesus had spoken, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when I was 24 years old, I had the great privilege of going on a trip to France. And uh, um, the many things that we did on that trip, we visited the Notre Dame and um, looking at that magnificent building and the artwork within it, people were standing around just in awe of the magnificence of this building. And... Yet, as I was leaving the Notre Dame and coming out, there were people prostrate, worshiping idols all the way to the front of the door. And I had never seen anything like that, um, having grown up in a Reformed home with my own eyes. And then I stepped out of the Notre Dame, and there was an evangelical group singing, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. And it was powerful. And I thought about the empty shell of religion, And a building that was built off of the guilty consciences of people through indulgences, um, not something we want to admire, and the power of the work of the Lord Jesus in people singing about him as the rock of his church outside those front doors. What What a stark contrast it was. Now, I tell you that this morning because the Lord Jesus has and is, as was his custom, going to the place of worship in Old Covenant Israel. He is going to the temple now. He has left the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and he is going to the temple, and what he sees in the temple is the empty shell of Judaism. 
He sees the place that is supposed to be the dwelling place of God, the one place on the face of the earth where the the covenant Lord said, I am going to manifest my presence and my power. I am going to dwell in the midst of my people, of all the people on the face of the earth. And he walks in, and instead of seeing the presence and the power of God in that building, he sees it's become a a den of, of financial fraud and extortion and, and, and corruption. Um, there's so much here. Jesus, as you know so well, is going to cleanse the temple here. He will do it twice in his ministry, I believe. There's loads of debate, and I, I will not argue with you about this, but, but um, I, I believe the Lord Jesus cleanses the temple once at the beginning of his ministry, and then once you'll find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the end of his ministry, three years separated. Um, nothing changes. Those empty practices continue. Now, this morning as we consider John chapter 2, 13 to 22 together, I want us to consider really just three things. I want us to consider the cleansing, I want us to consider the restoring, and I want us to consider the responses. The cleansing, the restoring, and the responses. We'll notice that we first see the timing when Jesus is doing this. We're told that Uh, After he had been in Cana of Galilee, in verse 12, we're told he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers, and they stayed there for a few days. One of the reasons why I think that that this is not the same account as that at the end of the other Gospels is there is a chronology here. They stayed there a few days, and then when the Passover of the Jews was at hand, he went up to Jerusalem. Now, you know this, the Passover was that special time when Israel was to remember what God had done in redeeming them out of Egypt. Uh, It was, remember, that most gospel-centered of the festivals. They were given the Passover lamb. We've, We've heard about John the Baptist already pointing to Jesus and saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know from the rest of the New Testament he is the Passover lamb. And yet as the true and the last Israelite, Jesus, is going to the temple to worship as was commanded. He is the covenant-keeping Lord. Remember, he, he did one thing. By the way, we don't know really anything about what the Lord Jesus did from birth till 12, but we know that he went up every year with his parents to the temple. And now, as he begins his public ministry, he continues doing what he had been trained to do. And This festival should have pointed to him, and here he is coming into the very temple he dwelt in in the Old Covenant, and he sees how far it's fallen from what it should have been. Um, You know, before we look at that in depth, I I do just want to note the connection between Jesus cleansing the temple and what happened right before this. Remember, right before this, he's at the wedding. And you almost see a totally different Jesus, don't you? It seems that way. You, you, should, you should feel that tension. At the wedding in Cana, he is turning water into wine. He is saying, I've come to bring the true spiritual blessings. I've come to give you the joy that you can only have in me. I've come to fulfill all things, and I've come as the bridegroom of my people. And then in the temple, he comes with all the holy anger and zeal for his Father's glory and the souls of his people. Um, many people want to focus on one or the other. Beware of anyone who says Jesus is 
more gentle and lowly than he is holy and righteous. And beware of anyone who says he's more righteous and holy than he is gentle and lowly. That would be to pit different Jesuses against one another. It's the same Lord Jesus. And yet a stark contrast, isn't it? The circumstances have led him to respond differently. And, and really, when we consider the timing of this miracle and we consider that contrast, we have to ask the question, why does that contrast exist? Why does Jesus act with holy anger in taking a whip of cords and driving out those who sold the sheep and the oxen and the, the birds and the, the, and the money changers and acting in such holy and righteous anger? Why, why does he do that immediately after? What, what has... What has created this in the soul, in the sinless soul of the Son of God. William Still, listen to this, I love this. William Still said, the lack of care for the pure worship of God and for the salvation of the souls of men filled the gentle heart of Jesus with divine anger. Don't miss that. The lack of care about the pure worship of God and about the salvation of the souls of the people filled the gentle soul of Jesus with divine anger. Uh, another commentator said, we often think of Jesus as gentle and compassionate, and such he was and still is. But he is not just that. He said God is light as well as love. God is inflexibly righteous as well as infinitely gracious. God is holy as well as merciful. And we do well to remind ourselves of this. Um... It's interesting. I think John is juxtaposing these two things so that we see these two sides of the inner life of the Savior. Um, and so the timing of this sets the background. Now, um, the meaning, and we've already touched on this. Jesus comes in and he looks around and he sees that, uh, that pure worship is not happening in the place that he and his Father and the Spirit had designated for pure worship. And, and he's in the outer court of the Gentiles. He, he, is, he is outside the courts where the Gentiles would be brought in, and the majority of the corruption is happening right as he comes into the temple. And, and we're meant to understand by that that two things are happening. Not only is the worship of God being perverted by covetous practices by the religious leaders, but the souls of the Gentiles who are coming from far distances who are being taken advantage of rather than being brought in and enfolded in are eliciting in Jesus the strong reaction of righteous anger. Now, Jesus is the Lord. Uh, the Lord is coming to his temple. I th sometimes think we, we miss this. He is the glory of God. Remember in the Old Testament when the sacrifices were made, God came down, and the Shekinah glory manifested itself between the two angels over the mercy seat, and the Ark of the Covenant, and the most holy place. And, and that was where the glory shone forth. And in the New Testament, it tells us that Jesus is the brightness of his glory, that, that, that the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus. And that means when Jesus goes into the temple, the glorious, infinite God is coming into the temple. And this had been prophesied of. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There is an Old Testament background to this. Listen, listen to Zechariah. Zechariah says in chapter 14, verse 21, he says, In that day, 
There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts. That, that the same corrupt practices that were happening in the days of Jesus' incarnate ministry were happening in the days of the prophet. Israel was always perverting what God had given them. They were always trying to monetize the kingdom. And, and then there is the word of Malachi. Listen to this. I think, I think Jesus has this burning in his heart and mind. Malachi 3.1, this is about John the Baptist and Jesus. Malachi predicts, I send my messenger, it's John the Baptist. He will prepare the way before me, the Lord says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. He is here. He is in the temple. He has the divine right to the temple. John Calvin goes so far as to say that Jesus is intimating that the temple belongs to him. When he calls his father his father, he's not just saying what all true believers can say about God. He, he, is, he is intimating a divine right in the temple. And the act that he is doing, and don't miss this, because I dare say if any of you try to get a whip out and drive stuff out of here, we're going to stop you. Um, this is no mere fleshly act. In the flesh, they could have easily stopped Jesus. There's something in this that comes with a divine power behind it that's inexplainable. What he's doing, how is he driving out myriads and myriads of men who will spend the rest of the three years trying to kill him? Because he's God. And there was a divine power behind what he was doing. This is the Lord coming to his temple. And so the meaning of this passage, in many respects, rests, and the motivation of the Savior rests um, in what he had said about himself in the Old Testament. Um, I'll read to you what Calvin says because I found this so helpful. He says, the time being now at hand when he would publicly discharge the office assigned to him by his father, that all might be attentive to his doctrine, it was necessary that something new and strange should be done to awaken their sluggish and drowsy minds. You see, by the way, this is not given for you to get on Facebook and say you're just doing what Jesus did in the temple. Calvin said something new and strange because he is unique he is the lord of the temple and he doesn't begin with his doctrine he begins with this very unusual act in showing them now they're they're going to recognize there's something different about him they're going to ask him by what sign do you do this by what authority show us give us a sign but but they recognize there is something about this man this that frightens us they're not going to trust in him they're going to spend the rest of the three years trying to destroy him. But this beginning of signs in the temple is saying something to them about who he is and what he came to do. Now, I want to say this just um, as an illusion or by, I'm sorry, uh, as a rabbit trail. Um, there are many people who have misused this passage. And there are many people who have tried to say that whatever they are zealous about, 
they should be able to ramp it up to the same level of what Jesus is doing in the temple. So whatever preferences we have, whatever, whatever we think ought to be done, and, and let, me, let me just put this out here this morning. Jesus is not always as zealous about everything that you're zealous about. That needs to sink deep into our souls. There are many things I'm zealous about. Jesus is probably not zealous about. And so we want to be careful. Jesus is zealous about the glory of God, about the pure worship of God, about the, the, the pure teaching of God. Jesus is zealous about the souls of the, of the lost. Jesus is acting in zeal out of those things that matter most, that matter most in biblical revelation. And so he does this really wondrous act. Now, there are questions about the, the corrupt practices. Uh, it's not easy to identify everything. I mean, the Lord had commanded that sheep and oxen and pigeons be sacrificed. There was nothing wrong with the animal sacrifices, but those selling them were uh, doing so at exorbitant rates. They had turned temple worship into a corrupt business practice. And as I've noted, they were especially doing that to foreigners who were coming in and they were placing burdens on people. They were, they were charging taxes to do foreign money exchanges in the temple. And, and, you know, many churches may not do these things, but they, they have commercialized the church and, and they have monetized the church. My best friend has often said, if you monetize the kingdom, you lose the power of the kingdom. That's what's happened. You monetize the kingdom of God, you lose the power of the kingdom of God. God will not have his worship or his church monetized because his kingdom doesn't advance through financial schemes or commercial, commercial practices. Uh, his kingdom advances through his word and his worship and our witness to the Lord Jesus. And so... The meaning of this is that he is coming to reform. He is motivated by holy anger and righteous zeal for the glory of his Father and the salvation of the lost. And then, notice, no sooner has he driven the animals and the money changers out of the temple, notice um, that Jesus says in verse 16, Take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a house of trade. Um, in the Old Testament, you know this, that, that the temple was the dwelling place of God. Before that, the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God. Before that, the garden was the dwelling place of God. And, and the temple, for a very short time in redemptive history, was, was God's house. It was his place of dwelling. But, but, but Jesus is going to now take this from that, and when they ask him how he is doing this, he is going to carry us along to where things are moving into the new covenant. Notice that, that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, no doubt, they, they, they are riled up. And in verse 18, they, they say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Uh, Jesus says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Uh, why doesn't Jesus do a miraculous sign here. He just did one right before. Because if he had done 
a miraculous sign here, he would be telling those challenging his authority that God can be domesticated. They are wanting the domestication of God. Jesus will not let God be domesticated. And so he doesn't do a sign, but he tells them, oh, I'll give you a sign. And he takes them to his last sign, his death and his resurrection. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And we know he's saying that because John tells us he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus is the temple of God. Paul says, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus isn't like God, he is God. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Um, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the, the head of the body of the church. John tells us at the outset, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. And now John is picking up and he's saying, this is, this is God manifest in the flesh. We beheld his glory. He tabernacled among us. And, and Jesus knows that, that the old temple is going to pass away. And he knows that, that what he did in that temple, and this is so important, what Jesus does in that second temple in Jerusalem at the beginning of his ministry is not the thing in itself. You see, he knows that by driving out those animals and those money changers, he is not accomplishing what he came into the world to accomplish. And so when they say, by what authority do you do this? Show us a sign. He says, I'll show you a sign. You destroy this temple, and it will be destroyed on the cross. And in three days, I will raise it up. Now, what is, what is Jesus saying? Well, um, I think that Jesus is connecting what he's just done with what he's going to do. Because as we read on in the New Testament, it's not just Jesus who is said to be the temple of God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.11 will say, do you not know that you are the temple of God? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he will say, you are the temple of God. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will defile him in the new covenant Believers of every nation, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, no matter who they are, are all part of the temple of God, the dwelling place of Christ in the Spirit. And I think Jesus knows already that when the prophets spoke of God raising up a new temple, and he's not talking about a physical temple. By the way, I hesitate to call worship spaces sanctuaries just for the reason that we are the sanctuary as we gather together. God the Holy Spirit indwells his people, and, and we are the holy place. And in order for us to become that, something has to happen. Because when I look, when I look at what Israel had become when Jesus walks into the temple here in John 2, I realize that by nature, my heart is no different than the hearts of the Israelites. That I am just as prone to covetousness as they are. That I am just to, as prone to self-righteousness as they are. That I am just as prone to lawlessness as they are. 
And I don't need to know anything about anybody here to know the Bible's testimony is that's true of you too. And that in order for us to become a holy dwelling, there has to be a spiritual cleansing. Now, how does that happen? Well, as I meditated on this this week and I thought about the restoration that Jesus is predicting here, um, I thought, you know, we, we don't give adequate enough attention to the fact that when Jesus goes to the cross and he's nailed to the tree and the temple is being destroyed, that temple is by imputation filthy. On the cross, Jesus becomes, as it were, the filthiest sinner on the face of the earth because all of our filth is imputed to him. Um, Jesus didn't hang on the cross merely as a sinless representative. He is always sinless. But God imputes all of the filth of his people to his son, and then he pours out all of his wrath on the son. And as the temple is being destroyed on the cross, and as Jesus is undergoing a purification of hellfire on the cross, in his righteous and holy soul for our sins, God is cleansing the temple. How is it that God can say to us, I will forgive their sins, I will remember their lawlessness no more. I will wash them with pure water. I will cleanse them. As far as the east is from the west, so far will I put their sins away from them. How? How can he say that? Because he puts our sin on Jesus and he destroys the temple. God takes the punishment in himself. And as I meditated on that, I thought, you know, it's fascinating that that Jesus takes a whip of cords and he drives the animals and the money changers out of the temple. But, but when the true temple is being cleansed, he's being scourged for your sin. Isaiah says, for my sin, by his stripes we are healed. Isn't that, isn't that remarkable? How, how do I know that there's a fountain open for the cleansing of my heart? I look at the cross. And when I see the crucified Son of God and I see the temple of his flesh being torn apart and his righteous soul in agony as he suffers the eternal wrath of God, just a, 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 what he, the anger that he had in the temple was a, just a fraction of what his soul experienced on the cross. And I flee to him and hear him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know that the fountain has been opened for cleansing so that whatever remaining corruption is in my sinful soul, that's the source of its cleansing every day of our short lives. Um, We can't ever forget that. Um, We move out from here And we do care deeply about the purity of the church, the purity of the worship of God in the church, the purity of the doctrine of the church. But if we we overlook our own need for cleansing and we jump to those things, then we've missed the point. Um, We'll never really be zealous in a true sense 
of the purity of God's worship and doctrine if we're not interested in the purity of our own hearts. Um, when Jesus rises from the dead, Paul says he raised us up with him to newness of life. And Peter can say, you are living stones. And he's the chief cornerstone. He was rejected by men, but he was chosen by God and precious. He was made the chief cornerstone. And, and this temple's being built together. And as men and women come to know the Lord Jesus, God is adding to that building. And as we together keep our eyes fixed on him, and as we call on him, and as we worship him in truth, and as we encourage one another, and as we build each other up, and as we walk side by side with one another, he is working in the hearts and the minds and the lives of his people, and, and he is zealous for the, the cleansing of his temple. Remember, in John chapter 13, Jesus will do that great act of, of, of washing the disciples' feet, and remember he says, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. So the most important thing you could ask this morning is, have I ever been cleansed by Jesus? And am I desirous of being more cleansed by Jesus? That's what this is driving us to. It's easy to launch grenades at everybody who does things a little differently than us, and it's very hard to focus on my need to be cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, let's just briefly look at these responses. There are two responses here. Um, Jesus sort of says what he says as a parable. When he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it up, he's, he's doing something much like what he did with the parables. Many people think Jesus told parables because he liked to tell stories and he was a great storyteller and it helps people because everybody loves stories. That's exhausting. That's not why Jesus told parables. In fact, Jesus said, I speak in parables so that seeing they will not see, and in hearing they will not hear. Jesus spoke in enigmatic terms because the religious leaders weren't going to understand. They would not have him. Remember, they say later, and he says in the parable, we will not have this man rule over us. And so, Jesus, in a real sense, is hiding from them while revealing to his disciples who he is. Now, the disciples won't actually get this until after he's raised from the dead, which has always given me a little bit of comfort that we can hear things Jesus says and not get them right away. Uh, the disciples will remember, and they will remember Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house has eaten me up, and they'll understand why he did this. But, but at the moment, they don't fully understand, and, and, and the religious leaders in Israel will not believe. But, but there are two stark contrasts here. And I just want to note this morning, you all may be in very different places, spiritually, circumstantially, um, may be, all be in very different places, but there are only two responses to what we've heard this morning. Either we will harden our hearts in unbelief, or we will go to Jesus for the cleansing that he provides. There's only two responses. We will either believe, and we will trust him, or we will harden our hearts in unbelief. I hope as we consider this this morning that you will consider afresh this 
character of the Lord Jesus, that he is not only gentle and lowly, but he is also a savior who is motivated by holy zeal and righteous anger for the worship of God and for the souls of his people. I hope that you will also understand that this is pointing to the spiritual restoration of men and women and a spiritual cleansing through the shedding of his blood. And most of all, I hope that you will trust him, that you'll leave this place committed to calling on him, asking him to purify your heart, crying out to him to purify his church, and being zealous with him for the honor of God's name and for the salvation of the souls of others. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for this word, and while we acknowledge that there are difficult things in scripture, and while we acknowledge that there are things, Lord Jesus, that you have done that uh, we may not fully grasp, we thank you that you have helped us to better understand that your flesh was the true temple that was destroyed on the cross for our sin. We thank you that you have been raised in power, that you are raising your people up spiritually. We pray that you would continue to build your church. We pray that you would continue to purify your people and the souls of those that you have redeemed. We pray these things in Jesus' name.